Hi, everyone. There's a lot of unfamiliar faces tonight, so I might just share a little bit, I suppose, about who uh, I am. My name is Matt, and um, my wife and family and I have been coming to the granary for about 11 years. And uh, uh, we've, uh, like Rachel just shared, we've got a, a story that started in North America. Um, been married for 24 years. No, 23 years. And, uh, yep, three teenage daughters that live in my house and eat my food. Most days are pretty hectic with family and and things. I work as, <clears throat> up until last year, I was working as a chaplain uh, at a school called Charlton Christian College over near Lake Macquarie. And then left that job to pursue a PhD um, that I'm not doing anymore because that's what life's like. Sometimes you think you're going to do something and God's like, Nope, you thought you were going to do that, but that was just to get you out of now. So as God would have it, my wife is actually studying and she's studying to be a nurse. She's going to be a great nurse. And, um, I got a job cause that's what you have to do when your wife is studying. And so I, I thankfully, got a job at Sassnock St. Phillips and apparently a number of crew in this neck of the woods are going to be up there next year. I'm starting an entrepreneur program. I also run uh, with the business partner, a business consultancy, and I have a lot of fun with that. I really appreciated the things that were shared already tonight. And it's really cool to be a part of a pseudo retreat, even if it's just for the evening. And um I would start when when Ryan asked me to uh, to share. I've almost immediately had this scripture come to mind around the concept of discipleship. And what I'd like to do is throw out a few thoughts. And while I might be a little bit further along in the journey of of faith, I think the the more I I walk with Jesus, the the more I recognize how little I knew or know. And the things that I was confident about to be able to kind of give answers to, I'm like, ooh, I don't know if I would say that anymore. Or I wouldn't say it that way anymore. Who would have thought that any of the disciples that we read about in the Gospels would have any idea of what it would look like to walk with Jesus? Who would have thought that the 12 guys that, Jesus gathered around him from all walks of life, from fishermen to tax collectors to publicans, uh, people who were in the know, would be joined together. And um, like Ryan suggested, that word Talmud, they were covered in the dust of their rabbi for years. And mind you, um, this is during a time where the Roman rule was pretty epic. So a fisherman would come having caught his bag of fish and there would be tax collectors standing on the shore collecting upwards of 70% of his catch. How would you feel about those guys? And some of them were Jewish, like Matthew, collecting taxes for the Romans. And then this guy comes along and goes, hey, follow me, all of you guys together. Who would have thought that their lives would take the shape that they did over the next three years. And so we come to this story and you've probably heard it before. I know that I've kind of spoken on sections of it, 
over the years in John chapter 21. It's the last chapter in John, and it's, it's the moment after the resurrection, obviously. And uh, you, you, you perhaps know the disciples are just gobsmacked at what's happened. Uh, they're at sea. They're lost. And you, you perhaps know that Peter uh, is like, well, I'm going fishing. And a couple of his other disciples are going, well, all right, well, we'll come with you then because we've got really nothing else to do now that Jesus has died. And so off they go. They can't find any fish. And this guy on the shore goes, oi, you guys caught anything? You ever been really good at something? And then someone tries to give you advice about that thing? How do you feel about that? Isn't that great? That just feels so good. Why don't you show, throw your nets on the other side of the boat? You can just hear them going, yeah. They throw the nets. And it says they, it, they caught so many fish, they couldn't even pull it into the boat. 153. And only a fisherman would actually say how many fish they actually caught. So they're, they're rowing back and they're getting this sneaking suspicion that maybe the person that told them to throw the net on the other side of the boat was someone of significance. And you know the story, right? Peter recognizes Jesus and they're like, that's him. And they run out. And he like throws off his robe and runs and they have breakfast with Jesus. And then you come to this point. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? This time, Peter was hurt because he'd asked him three times. Lord, you know all things, Peter said. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following him. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? So he's the author of this book, John. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. That's quite the passage, isn't it? There's, there's a little bit more to the end of that, but that was what stuck out to me. I wonder why you're here. I imagine there's lots of reasons, as was alluded tonight. I mean, a great meal will do it. Being with people that you enjoy being with. Gathering, who's missed that over the year? It's been, it's been a tough year. But I wonder what goes through your mind when you, you say, oh, I'm going to explore what it means to be a disciple of Jesus to follow him. To be clear, we follow Jesus. Like he is speaking to Peter saying, follow me. We follow Jesus. But we also don't follow Jesus, do we? Because that would indicate that he's somewhere where we're not. And if we've put our trust in him and asked him to dwell in us, then actually he's right here. So 
part of you know, some of you may know, know this, but I know I've not shared it for a while. So I thought I would share this, this story. It happened 12 years ago. Uh, we weren't at the granary at the time. We had just moved up. And my wife, uh, when I met my wife, right around that time, I met her, uh, her then 12-year-old sister, Elizabeth. And Elizabeth was this feisty, some would probably diagnose it as oppositional defiance disorder now, but this kind of young woman who was shot straight at you. And if, you, if, you dis, if she disagreed with you, you'd know about it. And there's some, I was, you know, I don't know, 20, 21. And I, I just took to her and I just loved hanging out with, with Liz. And over the years, when we would, when I'd go and visit, we'd all, she and I would just go hang out. So I was like 13, 14, 15. I remember getting there and she was in a big fight with her mom. And I said, come on, let's go. Let's go have like a, go get a Coke or something like that. And, you know, and she would rail against, you know, the authorities the powers that be that wouldn't let her to do what she wanted to do. Anyway, time went on and um, we would, we would see each other, you know, every time we would go back for holidays and things, but I knew that things weren't always great with her. And over the, 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 I guess, previous couple of years, we'd kind of fallen out of contact. In fact, one of the really special things that we'd done the last time we were there was I took her to go get new tires for a car because it was a miracle that she was even alive. We talked about um, life and desires, like what really drives you to really do what you want to do. Yeah. So what do you want in life? And there's a couple hours. So 12 years ago, we got a call to find out that she had been brutally raped and murdered. She was pregnant. She was then 24. Uh, and I have a very clear image of my wife getting that news in our kitchen and then falling to the floor and almost the unimaginable taking place. Like someone that you've grown up with and known all your life and loved dearly is ripped from the earth. Now, I'm saying this because if we're meant to follow Jesus, it is actually into every single thing that you face. Like the mundane and the biggest struggles and the biggest gut-wrenching news you could ever receive, he is right there, and he still calls us to follow him. Now, I, I, share, I share that because from that moment on, so 12 years ago, really, really even up till now, our lives fundamentally changed. Like a new normal had to set into place. And I, I was faced with, what would it mean to follow Jesus if he, if he led me to not maintain rage and anger towards this man who did this to her? Because I, I couldn't even fathom not living with rage and, and anger. You know, like the kind of stuff that keeps you up at night going, how would I seek revenge? Now, I will say there were some beautiful things that came out of that event. The most tragic thing that you could think of. Actually, I can, I can tell you a couple of miraculous stories of actually people coming to faith and my wife even sharing her faith with people at the airport and actually still having a friendship with some people that she'd met many, many years ago. 
but it doesn't take away from the sting of that moment. There are some things that if you want to follow Jesus are going to be true for every single one of you here, every single one of us. And in a sense, it's going to involve your death. Following Jesus in in many ways involves a thousand little deaths. Tell me one disciple that wasn't faced with that reality. I mean, you, you know, first century Palestine, if you were sharing the idea of following Jesus, you would front load the reality of suffering. I found it fascinating that, that you guys chose that, that passage about being pruned. Here's the reality. We don't learn anything without adversity. And he's totally committed to leading you there. Um, last year, a, a book uh, called Faith for Exiles came out. Never, did anyone read that? No? Written by uh, David Kinneman and Mark Matlock social scientists that really were interested in the way um, young adults in the West, not in North America, but also the West, were kind of transitioning what it meant to be disciples in an era that is fundamentally different than other generations. I mean, you don't need me to tell you that culture has changed faster in the last decade than people would have, say, imagined, you know, due to, you know, technology. And there, there's a lot of things in that, that book. It's fascinating because he talks about, they both talk about the way that um, the Babylon that we read about in the Old Testament is like an exile for Christians who in the last maybe 40 years have actually been quite a dominant part of Western culture. Like, in fact, if you, if you listen to Mark Comer and John Mark Comer and Mark Sayers, you, you kind of get a little bit of this anyway. But the idea that for Christians... And perhaps rightly so, because of the turmoil going on in the in the Western world politically, the the reputation or the reason for being Christian is diminishing. Do you see that? Like just almost been happening kind of before our eyes. And I get it. I actually wonder when I think of my experience as a follower of Jesus now in my 40s and being a Christian for the last 20, 24 years, I go, wow. It's more complex now. There are so many things vying for my attention and desiring to shape my passions and desires to be pointed at comfort and consumerism and entertainment and individualism and autonomy and the things that I know have to be put to death. I don't know if you caught this, um, this phrase, but when Jesus <laughs> turns and says, um, Jesus said this to indicate to Peter what kind of death Peter would have to glorify God. Following Jesus is like serious business. I mean, don't get me wrong. It, there is abundant life. But I don't know if I see it before understanding the need for us to be transformed and right through a cross. You want to be like Jesus. Just just about ten chapters before this, he's or a couple chapters before this, he's he's pouring his heart out in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, totally alone. His disciples totally abandoned, asleep when he's asked them to pray with him, and it's like the fullness of Jesus's humanity is on display right there. He's crying out, lamenting, and and saying, "God, I don't want to do this, but through your Spirit, do what you want." Do what you will. 
how do we expect it to be any different for us? Uh, Tyrell was the name of the young man that murdered my sister-in-law. It was actually the fastest conviction in the state of Florida. In 28 days, he was convicted. That doesn't happen. He's in jail. They wanted the death penalty, which you could get, but it wasn't a um, wasn't first-degree planned murder. It was a crime of passion. For me, following Jesus in light of that news meant really, really being honest. The kind of honesty that my religious friends, my conservative Christian friends, were not able to deal with. They could not handle that I was as angry as I was, that I was willing to drop the F-bombs that I was, or had a plan, as if that was an idea, to, to go and end this guy's life. What do you say to that, you know? It's not really helpful. You know what I mean? For me, following Jesus in that was like, you are going to not be angry at him. You know, my wife's process was a little bit different. She, um, she's in that, that process of dealing with a whole bunch of grief. And it wasn't, you know, grief's never really straightforward. It's never like, oh, yeah, you just kind of be sad about that one thing. It's all, it's all wrapped up in this complexity of regret and then guilt that you're actually mad. For her, the beautiful thing was actually finding Liz's Bible. We didn't even know she had one. And in the margin of this little chapter in Hebrews, it had a date. She accepted Jesus two weeks before she died. And, you know, that's good news. That's amazing. Like, we're going to see her in heaven. But, do you know, it didn't resolve that for us in the moment. Jesus had to actually give her, like, this really cool picture of, of Liz sitting at a banquet table with Jesus. That had this, like, powerful effect on her ability to just, okay, I trust you. Little death. It points to one of the things that um, this book called Faith in Exile talks about. That if your generation or mine or maybe anyone on the planet, if they have any hope to maintain a robust and deep and lasting faith, and walk as a disciple of Jesus for the rest of their lives to finish well, though they had five ideas. Who knows that it's more than five, right? They argued that um, people that maintain that, they knew that they knew that they knew what intimacy with Jesus felt like and experienced. I find that really difficult, right? Because intimacy, boy, won't we, don't, we don't throw that one around. Like Jesus is our boyfriend. We used to like sing this song when I was first a Christian, like, let me feel the kisses of your lips. I'm, what the heck? <laughs> but it points to this reality like either we're just singing songs that kind of evoke emotion or they're reflecting a truth that is experiential. And that's not just the lovey-dovey intimacy thing, but actually an ex, uh, a relationship with God that's totally and brutally honest honest about like, what are you really struggling with? What are you afraid of? What are you mad at? Um, I, I would, con I, I would um, by the way, agree with what was set up here that if you'd, you have no one that you can share those things with, ask God to help you find one. Get a friend that you can be honest with or a, a mentor that you can speak to honestly that is willing to call you on your crap. And it's made all the difference in my life. Another cool thing was um, point two that they, they wanted to make was how, 
how this generation needed to be educated with a purpose. That sounds very, you know, hoity-toity, doesn't it? Their point, of course, was that you, you and I consume information really quickly, don't we? Just the flick of a thumb. It's almost this godlike thing. No, don't like that. I'll flick it or I, uh, whatever. But that education with a purpose meant some deep thinking, reading, being challenged with opinions, political and otherwise, that we don't agree with and being okay with that, learning how to dialogue with people that sit on opposite sides of a theological spectrum or a political one or you name it, an ideological one. The third kind of point, which is kind of typified here, is forging real and meaningful and transparent relationships with people, guys and girls, not on a screen, but face-to-face, where you, you can learn how to read social cues and respond in ways that are honoring and humble. The next thing was about mission, which I have to say, uh, and this probably sits, has been really challenging for me lately, is disciples of Jesus disciple people. Disciples of Jesus disciple people. You are a disciple. And that discipleship is realized as you disciple others. And you just see this right in the New Testament, right off, off the bat. People come to faith in Christ and almost immediately, actually, I don't know how immediately. I mean, you've got Timothy, you've got a whole bunch of people, but fairly early in the game, they're encouraged, go and be Christ to others. Shape what they believe too. You're meant to be a virus, right? You're meant to be contagious. And I think there's seasons of your life, whether it's in formal ministry or in other vocations or other things that you're like, you, you, you can tick that box really clearly. And then there's other times you're like, oh, yeah, that's not so easy to do. And if that's you, like going, oh, I'm not really sure. Well, that's God's desire for you to actually be a disciple maker. The last thing, and I'd love to end with this to just say, what do you think? Because I've, I've got my own little, I guess, thoughts about this. They landed in this, on this point that um, particularly young people should seek to know what it means to be discipled within a vocation. What do you think about that? I'll read to you what it says here. Research shows that young adults are keenly interested to find how their faith might be relevant to their work. Does that sound like a new concept? I hope not. I don't think so. I think you guys have been talking about that. For, it, for my generation and my parents' generation, that was madness. Like, what? We're just trying to get coal out of the ground, or I don't know, whatever it was. More than 90% of resilient disciples really want to use their unique talents to honor God. And nearly that number say God designs each person with unique callings on their lives. You believe that? Yet churches often let them down by not helping them to discern their calling or vocation. Baby boomers are the worst, sometimes unwittingly contributing to this by slapping them down and their ambitions um, pounding the drum of their own generations, you must pay your dues philosophy, you know. Oh, you can't, you know, pretend to serve God in your vocation because you just got to earn money. Churches that are thriving often have uh, ways that young people can discover how God's created them to do life in a particular vocation. This opportunity for churches is often about vocational discipleship which is approaching work through the lens of an active and growing faith. Um, And there are ministry movements like uh, Center for Work and Faith. And 
had the privilege of uh, spending some time at Regent College a couple of years ago and did a summer course on this. And I really believe that it's possible. So just from an older person, I, 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 wanted, I want you to know that I actually think, particularly in this time and place of history, and maybe even, you know, the affluence of our particular area, there are ways that I think for followers of Jesus, you can specifically be involved with the redemptive work of creation, of, of helping the marginalized and designing things for people to flourish as human beings. And I really think that that's a part of discipleship. Now, I'm a, I'm a teacher, so I suppose that might be an easy draw, but it doesn't always, it's not always that way. So I, I kind of wanted to end on that to say, while there will be universally true things that will be true for every one of you if you want to follow Jesus, you know, dying to self, the flesh, being humble, learning to pray. Maybe you pray more and um, more authentically this year than you did last year. If you don't, well, keep trying. Learning and growing, all of the things, you know, gathering together, these kinds of things. But I wonder about for you specifically, have you wrestled with some of these things that I've spoken about tonight in a real way? Is it a vocation? Is it about particular relationships? And so um, I love that these guys have put together journals. And I wonder if, um, uh, just before dessert comes out, uh, if in the back, I know that there's some lines to, to, to write some things. If I could make just four suggestions about something that I might just provide a little bit of time right now to reflect on, and then we'll give the okay from dessert, and maybe we can have some discussion and then end however you guys would like to. I am a fan of being honest before God, putting your hearts uh, before him. And so may I suggest that we spend just a bit of time asking, or maybe even you telling God, what are you mad about? What are you anxious about? And what are you sad about? And then finally, what are you genuinely glad for? So what are you mad about? What are you anxious for? What are you sad about? And what could you say you're genuinely glad for? Let me pray. Father, uh, thanks for opportunities like this. Um, I pray that my words have been in some ways your words and fallen on ears and hearts that need to hear them. Holy Spirit, would you, um, would you speak as we are honest before you, as your children and those who long to be disciples of Jesus. Mm-hmm.